Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, and I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top compliance commentators. The Everything Compliance gang includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, the founder and publisher of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, Sarah Haddon, the publisher and owner of Corporate Compliance Insights, and Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London. In each episode, we take a look at various topics of interest in the compliance arena. We also have shouts and rants at the end of each episode. I know you will enjoy it. In this episode, we take things in a little bit different direction today as we opine about the proposed purchase by Donald Trump of Greenland. We take a look at it from the compliance perspective with each commentator looking at it from their own unique angle. Matt takes a look at it from the internal controls angle and looks at some of the challenges and changes uh, around SOX 404 reporting that would come into play. Mike Volkoff looks at it from the due diligence perspective, and he talks about the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy safe harbor on M&A, what you need to do to slide into that safe harbor, and how perhaps the Trump administration could move into that safe harbor under the FCPA. Jay Rosen picks up slightly from Mike on the pre-acquisition due diligence front, but focuses on culture. He uh, talks about how one assesses culture in the pre-acquisition stage. Does that assessment uh, remain valid? Is the target being honest or just satisfying what uh, they think the acquirer wants to hear in order to keep their jobs? And finally, Sarah Haddon takes us uh, on a journey from the journalist perspective here. What's the story? Is it the U.S. purchase? What does the U.S. gain in the deal? What does Greenland gain in the deal? What does Greenland lose in the deal? What's the human interest story about Greenlanders coming to America? And will Greenlanders be treated as poorly as Puerto Ricans are under the Trump administration? It's a fascinating exploration of a topic that's literally torn from the headlines. I know you'll enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. So Mike Volkoff, what are your thoughts on the U.S. buying Greenland. What a great story. Uh, and I thought, um, once again, I thought uh, Denmark's uh, prime minister was uh, showed a lot of class. But uh, let's, if we're looking at it from a compliance standpoint, well, the first thing we have an issue with is whether or not we have an agreement um, and uh, whether or not we're going to get involved in due diligence uh, and whether or not we have a willing party. But nonetheless, um, to me, from the perspective of, uh, you know, due diligence, looking at acquisitions, uh, to me, this raises a real question as to whether or not we're going to grow as a company through acquisitions or organically. And organically, I hope uh, we reproduce in a good way in the United States. But uh, the problem that I have is uh, we have a, a CEO who seems to be uh, off the reservation. But nonetheless, let's assume we're working for the CEO and we have to look at the idea of acquiring Greenland. Uh, there are a lot of issues uh, 
And, you know, if we have to follow orders, we're going to start to look at due diligence as to, number one, what's the business reason we're acquiring them? Number two, uh, kind of risks and regulatory uh, applications do we have? And three, what are the cultural issues in terms of integrating them into our business? You know, I thought it was fascinating. I saw an interview. uh, They went to one local town and somebody said, uh, what do you think about the idea of, you know, Donald Trump says he wants to buy you? And they said, the guy said, looked at him, he said, he's mad. He's crazy. He's just crazy and walked away. So, um, but I think what all of this raises is when we have an issue where we have a CEO who apparently got the idea from Senator Tom Cotton mentioning it to him at one point from Arkansas, uh, and then started to bug his staff to, uh, you know, acquire this, uh, Greenland. Um, you got to start to circle back with questions like why, what's the benefit? What are the downsides? Greenland, I think, uh, you know, uh, are they in compliance? How are we going to integrate them into it? To be honest, uh, Tom, it's such a, it turned into such a farce this week. Uh, and I think it reflected, uh, poor planning, poor execution. And of course, um, for a company like the United States at this moment, are, we suffered more than serious reputational damage. Uh, And that's all the compliance lingo that we can put into this. But taking a step back from the due diligence standpoint and assuming we are operating in the real world, you know, what what I see these days are people are doing a lot of things um, in terms of acquisitions. They try to do due diligence. Due diligence itself has been, I think, uh, turned into more of a rote procedure. I don't see compliance having as big a seat at the table as they should uh, in these situations. But the real hard work usually comes post-closing and in the acquisitions, uh, in the integration standpoint. One last point. I'm working with a company the uh, in a day or let's say the first week after acquisition, the acquired company walks into the chief compliance officer's office and says, by the way, did we happen to give you uh, all these E&Y reports on the internal investigation about potential uh, bribery in China? And uh, he says, no, nobody knows anything about that. And they walked in with uh, a box of materials reflecting a real problem. And uh, they were quite upset. But after the integra- after the closing had occurred, what can you do? You can't go back and sue them. You're not going to unwind the transaction. It was a multi-million dollar acquisition. And it shows to me the dangers and risks that go along in the acquisition process. But I have a feeling that if Greenland ever ran due diligence on us at this point in time, we'd be uh, in a little bit of trouble. But those are my initial thoughts on that. So, Mike, uh, about this time last year, perhaps uh, 13 months ago, we had an announcement from the Department of Justice that they were incorporating a safe harbor for mergers and acquisitions under the FCPA or under FCPA enforcement into the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy that Rod Rosenstein announced back in November of 2017. Could you tell us uh, maybe what the steps a company needs to take to at least uh, claim they can fall under 
the safe harbor provision in the new uh, or in the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy? Yeah, it's interesting you raise that. There's a safe harbor and then there's an unwritten safe, safe harbor, which I'll, I'll mention to you. Uh, there was a Matt Miner gave a speech. He's a deputy in the criminal division saying that the FCPA corporate enforcement policy would be applied in corporate uh, acquisitions. So what essentially it means is that when you acquire a company, you obviously do due diligence in advance. But they but I, and I give DOJ credit for this. They started to realize that the real work is in the post acquisition integration process. And they encouraged companies to conduct an FCPA audit in the integration process. And if, let's say, within 12 months, and that's a safe harbor, you come in, you integrate the company, you report any violations, you train your officers and, uh, you know, your new officers and managers, and you um, train new employees and you integrate them into your compliance program in terms of policies and procedures and controls, uh, then basically if you do all that, you're going to get a pass uh, with regard to anything that you discover during that 12-month period. That's a far cry from for geeks in the FCPA area. That's a far cry from the 2008 Halliburton policy, which basically said the day after closing, you're liable for it. The safe safe harbor is, they say 12 months, they mentioned 12 months, but you actually have, I think, up to 18 months, but don't tell anybody. In any event, uh, and they, they're actually pretty, um, they'll work with you on, on those dates. But that's sort of where we are. And I think, Tom, you did a great series on your blog about the sort of evolution of this policy uh, beginning in 2010, 2011 to where we are today. But that's uh, so for anybody who's interested, I would go back to Tom's blog on that. So, Jay Rosen, if I could ask you to pick up uh, a slightly from Mike on the pre-acquisition due diligence, but really focus on the culture. I think the uh, culture of the United States and Greenland are fairly different. And how would you go about assessing culture in the pre-acquisition a phase. Would you tell the target, uh, would you be honest with them? Would you tell them what they want to hear so that they might think they could actually keep their homes in Greenland? Or would you be honest with them and say, a uh, white man is coming to take your land? Well, that's a, that's a loaded question, Tom. Um, as you said, I'm going to jump off from where Mike started things off. And one of the things, um, you know, whether or not this hypothetical would ever happen uh, I want to take a look at this from the independent monitoring perspective. And as we all know, with M&A, it's usually a very quick race to the finish. That is something that usually does not happen as much as it should. Uh, and then, you know, as you just touched upon the updated uh, April 2019 evaluation of corporate compliance programs, there are specific um, prongs that are written in here to cover due diligence, to cover integration, and then to cover implementation. So the first thing I would talk about is looking at culture. Our perspective is that you really need an independent person to come in. And when we find that we are doing uh, due diligence uh, M&A monitoring, and you come in as a purely independent outside party, you really tend to get the best answers and you get as close to the truth as you can. 
And, uh, you know, as long as you're not like the guys in office space who are coming in to, uh, you know, reduce the force, uh, we find people are, are much more open about processes and procedures and how they do things. And, um, you know, the slippery slope that we would look at from this perspective is the uh, CEO in chief who wants to uh, run this transaction probably has no idea whether or not there would be a cultural fit between the United States and the people of Greenland. And uh, furthermore, he probably doesn't give a rip whether or not it happens. So after we would start looking at the culture and the process, we would be either talking to different uh, senior level executives, but then also wanting to get an idea on what kind of government contracting happens in Greenland and uh, the you know, the uh, agreements that they have with third party vendors, how clean are all those, but also just culturally, how do they all roll up into the government of Greenland, the country of Greenland, and how would that be a fit when the, if the U.S. ever did the acquisition? The next part we would do is take a look at that cultural assessment and see what kind of clues it gave towards the integration of the uh, country of Greenland in the U.S., where are there places where culturally they uh, overlap and that they are working in the same direction? But more importantly, from your acquisition perspective, are there any major gaps that uh, would force you to either potentially reconsider the transaction or retrade it? And then after figuring out um, what that integration would look like, this really gives you an opportunity to come up with a game plan. And uh, again, that might be something where you need to uh, take the compliance and culture of uh, the U.S. and transport that over uh, to Greenland. But God help the people there if that ever happens, because uh, I would think at the end of the day, when you kind of look at this transaction that... Uh, Hopefully, uh, Greenland uh, has already voiced their opinion that they don't believe that there would be a good cultural fit. And uh, with the president throwing his hissy fit that uh, he was disrespected by Denmark and will not go meet with them, uh, I think from that uh, target's analysis that they would be uh, happy to uh, do without uh, what's happening here uh, from the president of the United States. So it's, uh, as we said, it's a, it's a very interesting question to ponder, but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, this is just so out of the realm of possibility that uh, it should have started and stayed with the onion, but unfortunately it's given us a whole uh, show to podcast about. Jay, I'd like to pick up on your point about reviewing a cultural assessment uh, and then using that as part of your roadmap for the post-acquisition integration. Uh, certainly, uh, I can understand that in the context of Greenland and how they might fit into the United States, but it seemed near the end of your remarks, you also thought it was important to consider how an acquired company or a target would fit into uh, back into your business. So it's, it seems that there really needs to be a, a two-part analysis. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know really ties back to that message of if you're bringing an independent third party to come in that is not incentivized to, you know, come down one way or the other, whether the transaction blows up or whether the transaction goes through. And uh, 
unfortunately, you know, if, if your auditors are coming in to look at the target, you know, I, I think when you're making a deal, both uh, both teams are coming to the table. And uh, if we want to take a look at the uh, just recent corporate social responsibility remarks that were made uh, earlier this week by the business roundtable, uh, there's got to be more in this transaction uh, than just, uh, you know, bulking up and allowing one party to ride roughshod over the other. So I think that dual uh, due diligence from both the target and the acquirer's uh, perspective makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I have a quick question for you, Jay. Should all of this due diligence work, should this be done in the native Greenlandic or can it only be done in English? Since we always talk about the importance of local language, has anybody translated this into Greenlandic yet? And I just looked it up. It says on Google, so it's got to be true, that that is the local language of Greenland, not Danish, but Greenlandic, which I personally cannot speak. Uh, neither can I. And, uh, you know, from when I... I used to be Mr. FCPA Translations. I can tell you in eight years of doing that, we never ran into a single request for Greenlandic. But uh, I'll have to start Googling that, Matt. Good point. So on that note, (laughs) if you were looking at this from your perspective as publisher and editor-in-chief of Corporate Compliance Insights, what would be the story for you? How would you think through presenting the story, which you have multiple stories, how would you, as uh, putting asking you to put on your journal, journalist and publisher hat, uh, how would you see this playing out? Well, you're asking me how would I how would I play out the story? And as I as I mentioned before the call began, I'm planning to take a day off. I think I've reached my saturation <laughs> point on the news cycle and on social media and the endless endless chatter. In fact, that's what I wanted to talk about today if, with respect to Greenland, which is the news cycle and social media. I tell you, if I were a maker of memes, which I am not because other people are already really good at it. Here's looking at you, Matt Kelly. But if I were to make a meme, it would be the the prime minister of Denmark smiling that tight smile of hers and saying, no, thank you, Trump. You're not my type. But that would only have been funny, if funny at all, on day one when this story broke. And I don't, I don't think it's funny anymore. And frankly, the effort now to try to find humor, and especially the effort to register astonishment of any kind, is becoming harder and harder. The cycle repeats itself every week. You know, he acts out. We react. We calm ourselves down by agreeing that, oh, he's just doing this to distract us all from the real issues. But no, he's not, because that would require strategy. There's no plan here. That would that would require that he be smarter. And this is not a guy who is playing chess in three dimensions. What, what have we learned over the past week? Uh, we know that Greenland is not for sale. We know that we are not for sale either, except we can't seem, I think, to stop selling our attention by the minute in the form of column inches consumed and units of social media posts that we like and share and comment on. You know, I I used to double check myself on Twitter to make sure that the tweets that I was reading from the president weren't from a parody account. But I don't do that anymore because you cannot make up anything that is more madcap than an actual typical day of presidential tweets. There's just no sport anymore in trying to put an even funnier spin on what he's saying. And let me tell you, as an editor... And as an avid consumer of all kinds of really good writing, Trump has ruined satire for us. I'm serious. Just like Elizabeth Holmes has ruined 
the classy black turtleneck for professional women everywhere, Trump has ruined satire. But we're no longer surprised he's not going to change. We have to change. We have to show ourselves, I think, that we have learned something in all of this. But the only new stuff I've learned lately this week, I would say, is stuff about Greenland. I didn't know anything about Greenland before this. I thought it was green, for one thing. It's not. And neither is its relatively new flag, which is the result of a nationwide art contest. You have to look this up, guys. Go check out their flag. It is Danish modern design at its functional and aesthetic best. It is totally minimalist. It makes the stars and stripes look like it was designed by committee, which actually I think it it was, so you can scratch that. But what else did I learn? I learned that Greenlanders have just recently emerged from the period of the year when the sun doesn't set. They have that whole midnight sun thing, so their circadian rhythms are surely completely goobered up. And as the science people tell us, one of the best ways to set your internal clock is to spend less time staring at screens. So that would suggest that if we were to try to learn something from Greenland, that maybe they are not as addicted as we are to the crazy-making news cycle. And if they're not, that gives them more time to exercise, which they do, I learned, in Greenland a lot. Young people and adults, they ride their bikes to school and work, presumably without texting. And many times a year, this country that is large in size but small in population has national foot races for all ages. It's, this is something they do. Everyone turns out to run or to cheer along the routes, which tend to be tricky because apparently there are virtually no roads connecting the towns in Greenland. There are roads within the towns, but not between the towns. So you can run right up to the edge of your town. And this suggests that maybe they are more comfortable as a culture in being disconnected, literally, figuratively disconnected in various ways. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm frequently baffled by the concept of being disconnected. I must fear it because I keep charging my phone every night. I reach for it first thing in the morning, and the first thing I read is never good. News and social media is a soul-sucking thing to start your day with these days. If I were a Greenlander, Depending on the town, I think I would probably start my day pretty differently. In some towns, if they are like their friends in Denmark, they might start their day with Morgensong, which I learned is vigorous communal singing. They do it in schools and in workplaces, in town squares and coffee shops, and I cannot imagine what that release must feel like. Not the release of music, but the release of dopamine that you would experience every morning, standing elbow to elbow, neighbor to stranger. Just And maybe after the singing dies down, they return their attention to their smartphones. But if they follow their local leaders and elected officials on social media, they would see things like the Danish prime minister posing with her cat and looking really unglamorous, having her hair cut, trimming her hedges without a stitch of makeup on. It just seems really refreshing. It seems more fun than what I'm seeing. Not much of what we are seeing today is fun. It's no longer funny. It's chaotic and it's stressful. And you can't help but wonder how we as a culture are going to recover and go back to any semblance of what we were before we allowed this or invited it or created it. And it makes me think of those red ball caps that say, make America great again. And that refers to, I don't know what, I won't pretend exactly to know, 
But I do know for one that I would not mind a return to 2008 because it was the year before the year that I got a smartphone and it was the year that I joined Facebook and I went back the other day to look at my earliest post and it was something about me using a power drill to carve a pumpkin, which for the record works really, really well. But these days I'm so activated and I'm so angry all the time. I, I'm liable to carve someone's face into this year's Halloween pumpkin, effigy style. I know right where my drill is. Pumpkins are already orange. I think that's probably a done deal. But wrapping up here, I think what needs to be drilled into all of us while he is still talking and talking and talking is that we have a choice. We don't have to reinforce bad behavior by showing up for it 24-7. We try to teach toddlers not to have tantrums. We try to teach the dog not to pee on the rug. We could perhaps collectively not reinforce bad behavior to such a degree by teaching ourselves to occasionally disconnect and unplug, to go outside and run down the street, maybe all the way to the edge of town with or without screaming, or maybe even by gathering in the streets tomorrow morning not to sing that we could stand there elbow to elbow, turn off our phones, and spend 15 minutes being quiet. So, Matt Kelly, uh, first of all, I'm going to ask you to follow up from that, uh, but I'm going to ask you to do so really around uh, what, how would you see this in terms of internal control? Uh, well, Tom, I have to admit I gave this some thought, and I have some answers here. My question would be, if Greenland were a business entity, is it an accelerated filer that therefore would be subject to annual audits of its internal control over financial reporting per 404B of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act? Well, most likely, I think, yes, it would. Uh, so Greenland has roughly 56,000 people, let's say they're employees. It has an annual budget of, I think, somewhere near $1 billion or $1.2 billion. So there are plenty of companies out there that have tens of thousands of employees. You're doing a billion a year, a billion and a half in revenue. Like, yeah, sure, you're accelerated. You're doing ICFR audits. Um, and, you know, we've got government agencies that are much smaller than that, that they're also doing their own internal control over financial reporting audits every year. So I think that, number one, Greenland would be subject to SOX 404B. Number two, my other big question was, what about its disclosure controls for financial reporting? And that might be hard because Greenland ha is a commodities economy. There's a lot of fraud risk there. Uh, they export apparently shrimp and minerals and oil and gas and all these other industries um, that, you know, you really need some tight inventory controls over it. So then that led to my next question. The biggest material weakness a company faces when it is thinking about internal control is the competency of the human capital. And Tom, you and I have talked about this before, and I've written about it before, um, around new accounting standards, new auditing standards. Do we have the right people in place to put them into practice and really understand what we're doing? Does Greenland have that? Well, I am pleased to report that Greenland in the capital city of Nook, is it Nook or Newark, or I, I don't know what it is, um, but both BDO and Ernst & Young do have offices in the capital city of Nook. So they have at least some human capital out there that could help Greenland if they needed to do an internal controls uh, review or anything like that. But what is actually most interesting to me 
as I'm thinking about this. And this is where I very deftly pivot away from Greenland towards actual current issues in Washington with the SEC. Um, some people might be thinking, isn't the SEC talking about relaxing or rolling back 404B audits for a large swath of small companies? Well, they're thinking about it. And something happened at the SEC this week that I think is very telling about um, even if Greenland were or were not an accelerated filer or what you should do about it, the SEC is picking up a habit lately that compliance officers might want to watch about pushing through big policy changes regardless of what makes sense. What is most interesting to me is that the SEC did take an action earlier this week on a related issue that I think is emblematic of what we might see more of, and compliance officers want to pay attention to this. They held a vote this week, 3-2, party line, uh, to curb some of the power of proxy advisory firms. Compliance officers don't really need to dwell too much on what the proxy advisory firms do, but they provide advice to big institutional investors. CEOs have long said to the SEC, we would like you to curb some of the advisory firm's powers. The institutional investors have said, we would not like you to do this. And so this week, the SEC voted to um, amend its staff guidance to impose new curbs on the advisory firms. But this is the tricky part, and this is telling, is that by voting on this as an update to staff guidance, the SEC avoided needing to comply with the Administrative Procedures Act. So no public comment period, no cost benefit analysis. They just said, well, we've updated our guidance and we're going to do it. And now it's done. Boom. Um, that had a lot of pushback. And I just want to quote number one. Here's a great statement from the new commissioner, Democratic appointee, Allison Lee. She said, we are creating these risks without notice and comment, without justifying the choices made to affect to the affected parties and the public and without weighing the cost and benefits of the chosen course here. That is a big, huge message from a sitting SEC commissioner saying, somebody somewhere out in the big wide world who doesn't like this, please come and sue the commission over this rule. And sure enough, uh, the head of Better Markets, which is a group that favors shareholder rights and did not like this proxy advisory change, they immediately said this week, the SEC's actions today are unlawful. The votes rewrite long-established rules and de facto impose new ones. So regardless of where you come down on these proxy advisory firms, this action is going to get hauled in the court. I would bet my house on that. And while I said earlier, compliance officers don't need to care about advisory firms in particular, my point is that this is a harbinger, I think, of more, more things to come, including policy changes around exemptions or relaxation of 404B audits, amendments to the SEC whistleblower awards program, um, both of which have out for proposal and people are looking at them and there are sitting SEC commissioners on the Democratic side who are saying, why are we doing this? This doesn't make any sense from a cost benefit analysis. The SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, he knows that time is running out for him. Um, President Trump may very well not be reelected even if he is reelected, Jay Clayton might want to actually go back to the private sector. And so Clayton is now in this hurry up offense with policymaking, where I think he's going to do more of these dodge and weave maneuvers 
around the Administrative Procedure Act to push through policy changes that will have some real relevance for compliance officers. So we're going to have to watch that. Um, how he would actually impose that on a Greenland acquisition, we may never know. But um, that's what uh, caught my mind this week. And uh, I think it's going to be telling for months to come with uh, ethics and compliance issues. So now let's turn to rants and shout outs. So we're going to keep the same order and we're going to start with Mike Volkoff. Uh Well, Tom, I, I have what's called, uh, and I don't think we've ever defined this. How can you have a rant and a shout out and what would that become at the same time on the same issue? I guess I would call it uh, the business roundtable's uh, supposed, you know, innovative remark that the purpose of a company is its mission not to maximize stair- uh, shareholder value. <clears throat> and I thought um, it was just another in the line of a profound grasps of the obvious. But it's being treated in the media as if it was some great corporate innovation. And I think all of us who've been committed to the idea of ethics and compliance uh, viewed it as, uh, you know, a little late. Um, and I think it emanates, there was a the head of BlackRock, I forgot his name, uh, had written a shareholder letter in which he define this purpose and the mission of the company that we have to define uh, the mission of the company. Um, So I guess um, it's a rant, but it's also a shout out uh, in the sense of, uh, thank goodness, uh, this is being talked about, but it's a rant in the sense of a little bit too late, uh, maybe about 30 years too late. But um, kind of be interested as into what how if we can define a rant and a shout out at the same time. So Matt Kelly, uh, yeah, I I would love to jump in on this because Mike, I have taken a much more cynical view of what the business roundtable did, and I can boil it down into four issues I have with their statement. Uh, number one, this is the statement has no force of law, and actually, on the contrary, corporate law still makes shareholder issues paramount. And I think if any CEO did try to put these principles into practice in a strong way, like they'd be hauled into Delaware Chancery Court that afternoon. Um, this is just pretty words on a web page. And second, uh, if we are really talking about taking power away from shareholders, I somehow do not see that that power they will then be reallocated to labor unions or the local city council or NGOs or any of these other stakeholder groups. This is CEOs basically saying shareholders shouldn't be superior, the um, paramount issue because shareholders are annoying. And I get it because shareholders are annoying. I'm not disputing that, but they're basically saying this is the only group who can really tell us what to do. Therefore, now suddenly we think maybe they shouldn't be the, the, at the top of the f- corporate value food chain. Um, my third and fourth issues are, th- number three, if a recession or a bear market is coming along uh, where share prices would actually maybe be facing a prolonged downturn, well then, CEO pay, which is closely tied to shareholder return, would also then face a downturn. Um, And suddenly CEOs, now they're talking about other measures of value beyond shareholder return. And is this just a vehicle to restructure their compensation plans away from shareholder return? Because that might be worth less in the future than it historically has been. Um, 
But fourth, and what I think is most interesting is not really what the business roundtable said, but why did they say it now? And in fact, actually, if you go back to a lot of the comments we've made uh, on this session today and Sarah, you know, talking about Donald Trump and his general nuttiness, like this statement strikes me as America's CEOs starting to understand and admit the prospect of a President Elizabeth Warren or a Joe Biden like that is no joke. This is very real, very possible that that might happen within 18 months. Trump's reelection prospects are precarious at best. And if CEOs do not position themselves smartly now to show that, oh, yeah, Democrats, we've been on your side for like two years, we've been saying this. <laughs> uh, if they do not do that now, that could be a very uncomfortable position for corporate America come 2021 if uh, President Warren, President Sanders, President Biden, President Harris, I, it's going to, if the Democrats, I think it's going to be one of those four. But if any of them are in power, especially a President Warren, uh, CEOs are not going to have a fun time and they need to start building bridges to that camp right now. And that that's my big takeaway is that they understand probably is, is a very real thing that, uh, you know, Donald Trump might not be here in 18 months. And if he's not, who is? And we got to get on the right side of that person. Jay Rosen. All right. Well, this one should be filed under getting spicy. Uh, earlier this week, ABC announced that uh, Sean Spicer, the former press secretary, would be joining the cast of this season. Uh, very quickly, it got pushed back from Tom Bergeron, who's the host, who I remember from his days at WBZ in Boston. And now two ABC showrunners, one from Grey's Anatomy and one from Schooled, has uh, pushed back on the idea of having Spicy join the cast. Uh, personally, since I have seen him being so adept at darting between the hedges in the dark on the South Lawn, I think he possesses all the skills, and I would tune in for at least the first week until Spicy gets axed. Sarah Adden. Jay, when you said um, getting spicy, I just knew you were going to talk about the big thing on social media this week about the chicken sandwiches, about the big smackdown between Popeyes and Chick-fil-A. <laughs> or, or maybe I'm just spending way too much time on social media. That's that's probably accurate. And Mike, I wanted to respond too to your question about how do you do both a rant and a shout out at the same time. And I guess that's a backhanded compliment if you do a mashup of those two. But this is a this is a real compliment to you guys, which is thank you for letting me be on everything compliance, but indulging me and letting me talk about everything but compliance, which I often do, and particularly today. Um, as I mentioned before we started, I'm taking the rest of the day off. I'm going to unplug. I hope you guys and all of our listeners can celebrate a Friday afternoon in late summer and do the same thing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been a, a great episode, a ton of fun, and I can't wait to see where we go next time. Thanks, everyone. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have any questions of our panelists, Jay Rosen can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Mike Volkoff's at mvolkoff at volkofflawgroup.com. Matt Kelly is at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. Sarah Haddon is at Sarah at CorporateCompliance And although he was not participating in today's podcast, our colleague from across the pond, Jonathan Armstrong, is available at Jonathan.Armstrong at CorderyCompliance.com. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks when we have our next episode of Everything Compliance. 
Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.